Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6. Verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are that? What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those that were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that, had, that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would feed us heavenly food spiritual food that we would be filled by you once again. Lord, I pray for these, your people, that you would empower the preaching of your word, that the truth of your gospel message would go forth and have the effect that you would have it to have. We are truly blessed to be in your presence, Lord. May you be glorified and magnified. Now, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. The account given by the Apostle John concerning the life of Christ is meant to be read, to be digested, to be interacted with in the same manner as our lives are. A person might just get to know you, 
might just become your friend, but until they know about you, about your past, they really don't know you. They know in the moment you, but until they know what your childhood was like, what interests you have, what pain and heartaches you've been through, they really can't understand the in the moment you. All these things fill in the background details that are you. They are what make up your worldview, your understanding of people, and even of who the Lord is. They are the things that provide an understanding of your character, or even lack thereof. When we read a book in the Bible, an account of sex or section within the Bible, the only real way that you can get a true understanding of it is by knowing the things that have taken place before it. John purposefully wrote this gospel. That's not earth-shattering. But he purposefully wrote it, not as a chronographical account of the life of Christ, but a thematic one, which means that if you and I are going to truly understand the meaning of the events as described to us in chapter 6, a really important chapter, we have to know, we have to remember the events, the accounts, the evidences, and the truths that have already been told to us in chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 1 is a synopsis of the book of John. It begins with creation and an echo of Genesis. John leaking Christ with creation, proclaiming Jesus as the creator, and then proclaiming him as the light and life of man. Giving us the truth of the gospel message and the how of salvation, verses 9 through 13. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The rest of chapter 1 is a testimony of John, the son of Zechariah, and then the calling of the first disciples. Chapter 2 opens with the first miracle of Jesus, the first, the wedding, I'm sorry, the miracle at the wedding feast. A wedding feast which is meant to cause our minds to think of, to fast forward to the true wedding feast that Jesus will be presiding over as the master of the feast. He is also the one who has prepared and preserved his bride for that wedding making and even keeping her spotless, sinless. And at that wedding feast, he's not a guest. He's the groom, ready to receive his bride for all eternity. Which should then cause us to wonder at those that chapter 2 ends with. Those that believed in Jesus, but whom Jesus would not entrust himself to because he knew what was in man and no one needed to bear witness about men. 
cause us to wonder at his late-night encounter with a man who should have known that he was the Christ because he had the Word of God in his possession. He had the Word of God in his mind, but he didn't recognize the Word of God standing in front of him because he didn't have the Word of God in his heart. This story and the people of chapter 2 are given to us as a warning concerning the general masses who claim Christ as their own, but who don't honor him as God. Warn us that there are many who claim to believe, but who truly do not know him, as he's explained to us in his word. John then breaks out an exalted explanation of Jesus in verses 16 through 21 of chapter 3 praising the name of the Lord for the giving of the Son, for the love of God shown to man through the giving of the Son. And within that explanation, he speaks once again of those who are outside of Christ, including those that believe in Jesus, but believe wrong. Verse 19, and this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's stop there. Think on verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. What do you suppose that means? It means that those that are called according to his purpose, that those that the Father has given to the Son, hear his voice and respond. They repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. But what about the second part of that verse? So that it may be clearly seen that his, those people, their works have been carried out in God. This part of the verse speaks to the proof given in the actions of the redeemed that separates those who did not come to the light and those who have come to the light, those that Jesus has given himself over to. But what is it speaking about? What evidence is it talking about? That's explained beginning in the next chapter. We are given examples of what this evidence looks like, what these actions are, how these choices are fleshed out, beginning in chapter 4 with the woman at the well. The conversation between her and Jesus could have only ended with her conversion because God had chosen her as his. And her actions proved that her works were carried out in God. Otherwise, she would never have run back to that town that she hated, run back to where she lived, a scorned and outcast life, to tell those people to come and see the man who told me all that I'd ever done. And the people in Sychar could have only reacted in the manner that they did, listening to a woman they considered spoiled goods, an outcast, a nothing and then dropped all that they were doing to come hear a man. The same people who proclaimed to the woman soon after, it's no longer because that 
of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It was the actions of the man in Cana, that political official who was desperate for his dying son, who believed Jesus when he heard the words, Go, your son will live, at the end of chapter 4, whose actions proved his belief in his delaying of going, acting in faith instead of fear, and staying the night before heading home the next day. It's shown to us in the actions of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, a man who heard the same kind of words that the woman at the well did, had the same sort of rebuke as the official did before he came to faith, and whose actions proved that he has not, he did not come to the true light. One of those that have come to the light. You will counter, you may say, that he did act in faith, though, because after all, he did get up, take up his bed, and walk, obeying the command of God. But obeying the command of God does not equate to saving faith. This is not proof that his works in obeying the command to rise, take up your bed, and walk were being carried out in God. As evidence of that, we're given verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5, which say, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Are those that come out of the tombs, are they acting in faith because they obey the command of God? All of them? Is this the standard that we are to use as evidence of salvation? It can't be because there's a large portion of those that obey the voice of Jesus and come out of the tombs and not to the resurrected life. Only some of them. Most of them will be cast into hell, obeying the voice of the Lord only to be cast into the resurrection of judgment. We are being prepped. John has been prepping us to ask a really hard question of ourselves and of others. What is true faith? What is saving faith? What is the separation between those that are resurrected to life and those that are re resurrected to judgment? What are the evidences in our lives that prove that we have come to the light? That others may come the others have come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in God. Jesus gave us his testimony in chapter 5, revealing the oneness between the Father and the Son and reiterates and the separation between the redeemed and those that are not. Let us remember the book of John was written with one intention in mind to make much of Jesus the Christ, knowing that those that are his will believe. 
chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All the events, all the accounts, all the conversations up to this point bring us to this point. And the account that we're about to dig into will end up where we've already been. The separation between Jesus and all others. The separation between humanity. And the evidence that prove that their works were carried out in God. Asking the same question that I've already asked today. What are the evidences that prove that people have come to the light? so that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in God. Verses 1 through 4 are given us as an introduction to this new account, this new section. This is the only miracle that is found in all four of the Gospels. Knowing this helps us to understand the importance of it, the centrality of it, and its message. Chapter 6 happens about 10 months after chapter 5. It's not the next day. We're about 14 months away from the murder of Christ. John the Baptist has already been arrested, knowing that his time here on earth is almost over and, is, um, and, is, um, and he's preparing for his soon departure. We read in Matthew 11, 2 through 6, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John did not send his disciples to Christ because he was having last-minute doubts about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or not. There is nothing in his actions that could prove and support such a claim. And he didn't send them to him because he thought that Jesus had forgotten about him. He sent them because he knew Jesus was the Christ. And he was concerned for his disciples the disciples who, no matter how much he told them that Jesus was the Messiah, wouldn't leave him and follow the Messiah. He was concerned for their salvation and doing what he had done his entire ministry, pointing people to, sending people to Christ. And by the time we get to the events of chapter 6, he's been beheaded. He's now in glory having completed his race. And that Matthew account sheds light into why such large crowds were following Jesus. Because the meager signs that we've been given in the book of John are just cliff notes, merely representative of the life of Christ, the ministry of Jesus, and the effect that he was having on those around him. The stage has been set. The players are all in place. And we brought up the speed now and can new move, now move on. Verse 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. When Jesus had taken his disciples into Samaria on their way to Galilee, and after they had found him talking to the woman at that well, he told them that the fields were white, ready for the harvest, and admonished them to lift up their eyes and look. Here, it's the master of the harvest that, looks, that lifts up his eyes, seeing the crowd coming, and then asks Philip this question to test him. And don't think it's strange that the Lord tests those that are his. This is the only way that his servant will know, that can know, if he's a good and faithful servant or not. The only way that a servant can know if his heart is aligned with Christ, and even to what degree his heart is aligned with Christ. And don't think that the Lord has stopped testing his servants. If you are his servant, he will test you as well. Will you be faithful in, in spite of the public pressure? Will you be faithful even though there's no one else around at that moment? Will you open your mouth and speak to that person in line next to you and tell them about Jesus? Be sure, just like in our account, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. The important personal question is, are you desiring to be a good and faithful servant and be part of what he's about to do? He asked Philip how they were to provide bread for these people. Philip, seeing the size of the crowd, was dumbfounded. How in the world could they come up with enough food to feed such a mass? And sure, he knew the local area. He knew the local stores, the markets and diners. But none of them, and even most of them combined, could not supply what would be needed to feed this mob. Philip answered, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them just to get a little. A denarii was a day's wage. What Philip was saying was that even if they had eight months worth of wages, they couldn't pay for a single meal for this crowd to eat. It was impossible. And what Philip said was truth. It probably would have taken that much money to feed this group a single meal. And yes, it was impossible. But hadn't this man seen the impossible happen time and again over the last 14 months when he was with Jesus? Let's remember the answer that Jesus gave the disciples of John and Matthew. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. But old habits die hard, and self-reliance is one of the sins within a disciple that is the last to die. Ring any bells? Verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
The question may have been directed to Philip, but it was posed to all his disciples, and none of them had the right answer. But Andrew was close. This is the second time that Andrew gets a cameo appearance in the book of John. The first was in chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, and there too he is seen bringing someone to Christ. That time it was Simon Peter, his brother. And just so we have a correct understanding in our heads of what and who Andrew brought to Jesus this time, the original Greek is very specific in details concerning this boy and his lunch. He was a young lad, no more than 10 years old. And the lunch that he had was not five large artisan loaves of bread and two huge slabs of salmon. The loaves of bread that he had were more like cupcakes. And that they were barley loaves is evidence that the boy came from a poor family, the poorest of poors, for it was only the poorest of families that used barley to make bread. And the fish, they were probably small, dried fish, probably the size of sardines, just large enough to give the bread some taste as the lad ate it. These were the provisions that were presented to Jesus. Andrew's response, even after bringing the lad to Jesus, proved that he, like Philip, was completely out of touch with Jesus. He heard Jesus ask, where are we to buy bread for this crowd? In his response, he brought to Jesus a lad with a lunchable. In essence, these men who had seen Jesus turn water into wine heal the blind, the sick, and even bring the dead back to life are mildly rebuking him for asking such a silly question. Come on, Jesus, look around. Look at the size of this crowd. You know how much money we have. After all, you just looked up and you saw how many of them there are. And look, we've gone scouting around. And all we could find was this small boy with this small lunch to work with. You're going to have to change your plans. We can't feed him. How quickly we forget. Don't mock or scorn the disciples for their humanness, for their lack of faith and insight into the heavenly. How often has the Lord brought you into a situation where he has planned to miraculously provide. And you, in your own strength, either decide that you must act, or you look at the situation, the impossibleness of it, and you just give up. Only to have the Lord once again prove himself to be faithful, prove himself to be God, prove that you are not the master of your own destiny, and even prove that you shouldn't be proud of the faith that he has given to you. And finally, that all too often, when the Lord tests us, we, like Philip and Andrew and the rest of the disciples, fail the test of faith. We humans have a real what have you done for me lately mentality when it comes to the Lord? And at the same time, we think way too much of ourselves, even when it comes to spiritual things like faith. 
thinking that we have got this faith thing down. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus wasn't phased by their comments or their lack of faith. He knew in advance what he was going to do and told them to direct the people to sit down on the grass. Again, the accounts given, or the details in this account are given to bolster the truth and relevance of what was to take place. That we are told that they crossed the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, is important. Where they crossed the lake mattered. They were standing in a place, they were sitting in a place that is today called the Golan Heights. A place in the summer months gets scorched with a hot summer sun, where grass dries out and turns brown and fades away, like it does around here most August. But that there was plenty of grass squares with the fact that it was spring, which is when the Passover occurs, and where or when there would still be plenty of lush green grass for the disciples to sit the people down on. Also, in this verse, there's a shift of attention from people to men. Set the people down. So the men sat down. The verbal shift would have been exclusive of all women and children in counting. This is not to say that the men sat down and the women and children stood, remained standing, or that they were sent away. It's just a way of giving an exact count or a good representational count of the mass of humanity that was present. If there were 5,000 men, the crowd could have been anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people strong. That's a large crowd of people. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those that were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus had delegated the task of seating the crowd, but we are specifically told that it was he that took the loaves and the fishes, and after he had given thanks, that it was he that distributed them to the masses. Did he have the disciples' help? Maybe. Could be. But the point that John is making here is that it is the ruling and reigning king of the universe that is providing for these people. And not just providing enough food to keep them alive, but so much that they could have as much as they desired. The last part of that verse means very little to us. Who can, as we desire, jump into our air-conditioned cars, drive to whatever restaurant that we desire, and eat as much as we desire, as often as we desire. This has not been the case for most of humanity, for most of humanity. More often than not, there was just enough to live on. There was just enough to keep you alive, to keep you going. But the thought that you could eat just as much as you wanted was not a reality very often. The fact that this crowd of 15,000 could eat something to tide them over and then continue eating as much as they wanted, this is miraculous. Verses 12 and 13. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The command to now gather the leftovers was given, pointing to an eternal truth that has not yet come about, representative of the faithfulness of Christ in completing his mission, that all that will be given, that he has given himself for, as the bread of life, that he will lose none of them. John 6, 39. And what about the fact that there are 12 baskets loaded up? Is that supposed to represent the 12 tribes of Israel? Probably not. More likely, there were 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples to carry as they left that place, one for each of the forgetful, self-centered, self-reliant men to carry, one for each of the men who had given Jesus that mild rebuke for suggesting that they feed such a large crowd. They rebuked him for something, that thinking something like that was even possible. One for each of them to tote in remembrance that the Lord provides above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Verse 14. And when the people saw the sign that had done, that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is in who is to come into the world. The crowd, on the other hand, realizing what had taken place, come to a conclusion that is both right and wrong. Remember the size of the crowd, that most of these people wouldn't have been able to see what was going on where Jesus was at. If you were in the middle or the back of that crowd, all you would have been known was that you were being told to take a seat. And as those in front of you and around you sat down, you followed suit. And then from the front, you could see that there was bread and fish being passed back. Oh, we're going to eat today. Cool. But it just kept coming. And you kept on passing it. At first, you took some bread and fish. And then you took some more. And it kept coming. You had eaten enough. You were full. Something, or sometime in the midst of all this happening, the question of who was, at the, who was the host of such a large amount of food was being asked by those around you. And maybe yourself. Where was this all coming from? The question would go through the crowd. And the answer to it, that it was Jesus himself that out of thin air was the provider of the food would spread like wildflower, wildfire through the crowd. There must have been wild excitement, amazement, even some doubt mixed in in what was being said. Jesus was providing this out of thin air? That's impossible. But there's the food. Even after eating as much as you wanted, there was the food. Leftover as evidence. Once again, this man, this rabbi, had done the unexpected, the, un the amazing when no one was looking for a sign, he had given one. This had to be the prophet that the religious leaders were telling us about. He had to be the sign that God was about to free Israel from those hated Romans and usher in a time of unparalleled economic boom. Look at the fish and the bread that are left over. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd was correct. The prophet had come into the world, just as he had been promised. But they were wrong in the mission of that prophet, and even what power they held over that prophet. There's a sense of wonder that this crowd of 5,000 men in one moment would decide to start a revolution against the Romans. Because that's what making a Jewish king would have done. All because of one act. This speaks to the political and social climate that was prominent in that culture at that time. And it wouldn't be very long before many in this very crowd turned their backs on this man, who they now claim is that prophet, who they now want to crown as king and murder him because he didn't fit their political ideology, thinking that the Messiah would lead them in a coup. They were so convinced of this that they would rise up in rebellion against the Romans and for a short time would be set free of their rule. God was in that rebellion, but not to usher in the Jubilee as they thought. He brought it about to completely destroy all the shadows of the new covenant that remained. The new covenant that had been ushered in by his son, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The man at that moment that they wanted to make their king. And Jesus would have none of it. Before they could rally behind that thought, he, knowing what was in their minds and what was going to take place, withdrew from their presence. He left them. Okay, so these people had a bad understanding of who the prophet was, what the prophet was, was going to do. Big deal. They wanted to make him king, to elevate him to the highest position above them, to rule over them. Isn't that right? Isn't that proof? Isn't that enough? Are we to think that unless we have perfect theology that we can't be saved? If that's the case, then none of us can be saved because all of us are wrong about some aspect of theology. Is God so self-absorbed that if we don't get every aspect of him right, that we can't be his? No. The issue is not about having perfect theology. But theology does matter. The issue was and is Jesus was not a man that was to be made king. He is not a prophet that any man or all men elevate to the station of king over them. Jesus is king. At that very moment, he was sovereign, not just over the 15,000 people that were there, and not because they decided that it was so. He is sovereign over the multiplied millions that lived at that time. He is king over the cattle on the thousand hills, on all the hills, over all the fish in all the seas, 
over all the planets in the solar system and over all the galaxies of the cosmos. He is king, no matter if these or any accept it or not. You do not make Jesus king. You realize that Jesus is your king. You submit to him as king. No man makes Jesus king. He is king. We're told in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, so that every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Satan had the same thinking that these people did. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew 4, chapter 4, 8 and 9, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Ironically, it's not just Jesus that we have a bad understanding of. We, by and large, have a bad understanding of Satan, giving him way too much power and even understanding. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he, like the religious leaders, had a bad understanding, a wrong understanding of who the Messiah was. Satan, like these people, thought that he was a kingmaker. He thought that he could elevate Jesus to the position of king. Never knowing, not understanding that Jesus was king, is king. This is the mystery and the majesty of Jesus. How could a man be so humble, so meek, so mild, and yet at the same time know that he was God of all creation, that he and the Father were one? This brings us to the end of our story, the conclusion of this sign, and back to chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Back to that question that I posed to you at the beginning of this message. What are those works that are clearly seen? That are evidence that those that are Christ. Why was the actions of the people of chapter 6 in desiring to make Jesus king not actions that prove that they were those that came to the light? So that they may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. The answer is that they didn't act in faith. Faith in Christ. Faith is the lingua franca of heaven, which means that it's the language of heaven. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1. 
If you ever want to know what a working definition of faith is, chapter 11, verse 1 is that. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. You ever wonder why some people just can't be convinced of the reality of creation? Outside of faith, it's impossible. And then verse 4 begins giving us examples of those things which prove that they have come to the light, that their works have been carried out in God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The author of Hebrews stops in the middle of, of these examples to reiterate the importance of faith, the centrality of faith in the life of the redeemed, the absoluteness that without faith you cannot be saved. Verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That author then jumps back into giving his examples of the works of the saints of old that proved that they were children of life. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out, called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah, saw, or Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I'm hoping at this point, you're asking yourself, what's your point? Or better yet, what does my life look like? Which is my point. How does it stack up next to these lives? And it wasn't faith itself that mattered in the lives of these people, but what they had faith in. What they were living for. And their lives proved what that was. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Dear ones, can this be said of you, of me, that we live by faith, not perfectly, None of these folks did, as the Bible clearly tells us. But are we willing to trust the truth of the word of God and hope against hope and stand on its truth no matter what? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in, is, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed, e blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he had endured his seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same thing, were drowned. Let's stop here. Think this last verse through. There are two groups of people that do the exact same thing. They cross the Red Sea. One makes it and are saved. The others don't and are killed. Why? They were both acting in faith. They both believed that the Red Sea, that they could cross through the Red Sea. They both saw the same thing. Why could one make it and not the other? We're told in verse 29, because of faith. And not faith in faith, or in logic, or in a man-made God but in the true and living God. Can you see how important faith is? How central it is? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. 
By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would, fall, would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Up to this point, this faith thing sounds pretty good. Sounds like Joel Osteen may be onto something. Sounds like we are destined for greatness here on earth. But he goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with swords. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This faith thing doesn't sound so good anymore. And these verses, and these folks in these last verses don't just seem to have anything in common with the ones in the previous verses. They didn't win, they lost. They didn't prosper, they failed. They didn't live, they died. The point is not in the winning or losing, the failing or succeeding, the living or the dying. The point is Christ in whom we do win, in whom we do conquer in, and in whom we do live in. Verse 39 and 40. And all these through commended, I'm sorry, though commended through their faith, did not receive that was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should, need be, should not be made perfect. So what is that thing which God has provided for us? That which is better, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That thing is the king of kings. The king that had provided for these folks. The king that has provided for each one of us here today. First in giving us bread each and every day, but more importantly, has given us himself, the bread of life. Faith in this king, faith that is fleshed out in our actions, in our devotion and reliance on this king. These are the works that are clearly seen to be of God. Faith in the King. Jesus, the King, who provides for us, who provided himself for us. Listen to these words from that old psalm. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. 
Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, you chosen seed of Israel, you ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him Lord of all. Jesus is the prophet. We don't make him so. Jesus is the king of kings. We do not make him so. But through the gift of grace given to us, we in faith and by faith can know this to be true. And our works can be clearly seen as being carried out in God. Let's pray.